True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to our Spotlight Minisode, When Mothers Kill. Before we get into today's episode, I don't have any new Patreon or PayPal donors to thank, but I'd like to thank all of those who have signed up to Patreon, as well as those that contribute when they're able to through PayPal. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank some of the amazing people that have started helping me behind the scenes. As you all know, I started this podcast as a one-woman show, and for the most part, it still is. As the show has grown, though, I've started to acknowledge that in order to realize its full potential, I would have to start accepting some of the many offers of assistance that I was getting. I am a complete and utter control freak, so that was very hard for me, but I would like to thank the four ladies that are currently assisting with aspects of the show on a completely voluntary basis. Nadia I is TCSA's awesome Facebook group moderator. Emma Neville assists with research on selected cases, and I will always credit her in the episodes she's helped to research. Sabrina Shaw has started helping to run the show's Instagram account, and she's doing an amazing job in helping to bring more followers in and increase the show's exposure. And Penny Morris has been promoting the show's Facebook page and has increased its like counts tremendously. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for your assistance. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help keeping the show growing and improving. One last announcement before we get into today's minisode. If you follow the show on social media, you'll know that my first audiobook narration project, The Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, has just been released on Audible. I am super excited about this, and I'm grateful for all of the support that you've given the audiobook so far. If you are not yet signed up to Audible, keep in mind that they do offer a 30-day free trial, which includes one free audiobook. I'll leave the link to purchase the book in the show notes. Right, so enough waffle from me. Let's get into today's minisode. I would like to thank Nina Pikey for her research assistance on this one. Thank you, Nina. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. There's something about a crime in which a mother harms or worse still, kills her own child that somehow makes it almost unbelievable. For starters, society already struggles to believe that a woman is capable of the same level of violent crime as a man. But when it comes to family murders, 
we somehow find it easier to accept that a man would be able to kill his family. But when a woman does it, it seems unnatural to the point that the public refuses to accept it's true. Granted, it goes against all these so-called rules of nature. Mothers are supposed to protect their children against all odds. Female animals with young are known to be the most dangerous of all in the wild, as they will attack at the first sign that their offspring may be in danger. But even in nature, things sometimes go awry. A female animal may kill its young if the offspring has a poor chance at survival, essentially so that she doesn't have to use limited resources to attempt to raise a baby that will likely die anyway. In some sense, it's a mercy killing. The mother weighs up the odds of survival against the knowledge she has of how cruel and unforgiving the world is, and she makes a decision that she believes is for the greater good. Human beings, of course, are significantly more complex. And I think before I get into some of the case studies, I want to distinguish between the different terms that are used to describe interfamily murders. A familicide involves the killing or attempted killing of an entire family unit by a family member. I've actually covered a few familicides on my podcast, including the Hrikwistat murders, the Fenter family massacre, and the Adlington family murders. Filicide is the killing of a child or children by a parent. So in this case, the perpetrator is not trying to annihilate the entire family, but they are specifically targeting their children. Then there are other terms like matricide, the killing of one's mother, patricide, the killing of one's father, and siblicide, when a sibling kills another sibling. The act that we're discussing in this episode is called filicide, the killing of a child by its parent, and in our focus today, specifically mothers. When Harold's Bay mother Heidi Skierpers went missing with her two children, two-year-old Hugo and six-year-old Cosette, in October 2019, it didn't take long for police to discover the vehicle in which they'd been travelling at the bottom of a 100-metre-high precipice in an area called Fuhrklip in Harold's Bay. Heidi's vehicle had gone over with her and her children in it, 35-year-old Heidi's body would be recovered as well as her son Hugo's, but six-year-old Cosette's body has never been recovered. The shocking case blew up headlines and resulted in a wide array of theories making their way into the public domain. To my knowledge, the case is still under investigation, so no determination has been made as to whether any foul play was involved or if the vehicle somehow accidentally went over the cliff. What fascinated me about this horrific case is that so many people refused to believe that it was possible for a mother to purposefully drive over a cliff with her two children in the car. Suicide, it seems, is not an untenable possibility for a woman, but taking her children with her? Unbelievable. Except it's not. It happens, 
quite a lot, actually. Motives differ, of course. Sometimes the mother may be so ravaged by mental illness or postpartum depression that she believes she's doing her children a favour. And sometimes the motive is more callous, and it may just be a way to get back at a partner. Sometimes mothers don't take their lives along with their children. They just outright murder their offspring. In Heidi's case, we still do not know what happened, and maybe we never will. People that knew her well say that she would never have killed herself, never mind the children, and maybe they're right. We don't know. The debate about this incident has raged on, though, and it seemed to be a black swan event, something so horrific and inexplicable that surely it could never happen again, until it did. On the 21st of January 2021, a man driving near Fulclip in Herald's Bay spotted an eight-year-old boy walking on the side of the road. When the child waved him down, the man stopped. The child was crying, shaking and clutching his ribs, which he said hurt. He allegedly told the man that his mother and sister were in the sea. The man thought, perhaps, that the child's family had been washed off the rocks, and he bundled the child into the car and told him to show him where they were. The boy would point out an overhang, and the man soon saw pieces of a vehicle and the body of a woman in the water. Although an official determination is yet to be made, it has been reported that the child told the man that his mother had no longer wanted to live and accelerated the car over the cliff. He said that the car had rolled before going over and he had fallen out of the vehicle while it was rolling. His mother's body was recovered, but the body of his two-year-old sister, who remained in the vehicle when it went over, has yet to be found. The child's father had asked for their names not to be released in the media, and although some media houses have still done so, I will not be using their names. In this case, it seems that the child's alleged statements to the man that found him points to a suicide and intentional filicide. I have seen comments that indicate that the family does not believe that this is what the child said, or they believe that his comments may have been taken out of context. Whether or not this woman intended to go over that cliff, the experience for this eight-year-old child is undoubtedly horrific. His father, the woman's husband, was at work at the time of the incident, and I am sure that part of the police's investigation will involve finding out what the young mother's state of mind was in the days before the incident. Sadly, if this was an intentional act, there may not have been very many warnings. When people are suicidal to this extent, they often don't want to be stopped and will not necessarily tell anyone about their plans. And this is another reason that people find it so hard to believe that a mother could do this, because she may well have appeared completely fine to the outside world. I know that this is probably just a coincidence, and I will repeat that we do not know for sure 
that either of these women intentionally drove over that cliff. But they both had two-year-old children. Postpartum depression can develop anywhere between a few weeks to a year after a woman gives birth and affects one in five mothers. The condition is often mistaken for the so-called baby blues, which is a short-lived state that often occurs in women after birth as a result of hormone changes, sleep deprivation, and the chaos of caring for a newborn. Baby blues will usually correct themselves within a few weeks. Postpartum depression, however, is significantly different, and sufferers report feeling unable to bond with their baby and feeling no joy or excitement about the birth. It also affects sleep patterns, which when paired with normal sleep deprivation caused by caring for a newborn, can result in serious mental shifts occurring. Very often women will not seek treatment for postpartum depression because they feel ashamed. They do not realize that what they're experiencing is as a result of hormonal and chemical changes beyond their control. And the added societal pressure of this idea that all women should be madly in love with their babies at first sight only makes them less likely to want to admit how they feel. In women that have suffered from depression or other mental illnesses prior to giving birth, the chances that postpartum depression will develop are far higher. Most women with postpartum depression are more at risk of harming themselves than their children, but this all depends on other circumstances including pre-existing mental illness or personality disorders. While a large number of women will suffer from postpartum depression to some degree, a far more rare and far more dangerous condition that can develop after giving birth is postpartum psychosis. This is more common in women who have a personal or family history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Symptoms include irritability, restlessness, rapidly changing moods, confusion, erratic behavior, and delusional thoughts. Possibly one of the most well-known cases of postpartum psychosis, ending in a mother killing her children, was that of Andrea Yates, who drowned her five children in a bathtub in 2001 in Texas. Yates had suffered from schizophrenia her entire life and had only been under sporadic treatment. When she started to have children, it became clear that the births were sparking significant episodes in the woman. Sadly, despite this, she continued to have children in close succession, and paired with the fact that she was a stay-at-home mom with a husband that worked long hours, she soon became wrapped up in a fantasy world driven by postpartum depression and psychosis. Yates believed that she was saving her children's souls from the devil when she killed them. She was initially found guilty of capital murder and barely escaped the death sentence. But the ruling was eventually overturned and she was committed to a psychiatric facility for treatment as a patient of the state. There are significant treatments available for postpartum depression, 
both through psychotherapy and short-term antidepressants. The biggest problem is that the stigma that once surrounded depression still hangs over the postpartum variety, and women find it very difficult to seek help or even admit their feelings to their partners. Again, I'm not saying that either mother that lost their lives at full clip did so intentionally, nor that they suffered from any type of mental illness. But I think it's important for us to understand that this can happen if women do not seek treatment for these postpartum conditions. Of course, not all familicides or filicides occur with the suicide of the perpetrator, and certainly not all are as a result of severe mental illness in which the mother believes she's acting in her children's best interests. Sometimes women just don't want their children anymore, or they use them as pawns to hurt their partners. In 2019, a 30-year-old mother from Clarinet lured her four children home by telling them she had presents for them. She then proceeded to feed all four children rat poison and leave them to die before wrapping them in blankets and alerting relatives to her deeds. It would emerge in court proceedings that the father of two of the children had left her and started a relationship with another woman. The mother would claim that it had been the stress of raising four young children on her own that had driven her to the murders. The court would find her guilty of having premeditated the murders of her children and found that she had more than enough time to get medical assistance to save them, but failed to do so. The woman was given four life sentences. In a study published by the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Advertisrant, entitled A Qualitative Study of Mentally Ill Women Who Commit Filicide in Gauteng, South Africa, researchers concluded that most filicidal women looked at in the study were psychotic at the time of their offences. This, of course, is not a surprising conclusion, considering the study focused solely on seven women who were patients at Stagfontein Hospital after having killed their children. What this does tell us is that the courts do seem to get it right most of the time when determining whether there are indeed mental issues that led to the crime. This does not, however, tell us how many women that commit filicide overall suffered from some form of mental illness. Interestingly, despite the preconceptions that we as the public have, global statistics show that the large majority of filicides are in fact committed by mothers. The act of filicide is broken down into various types, which include altruistic filicide, when the parent believes they are helping the child in some way by killing them, acutely psychotic filicide, in which the parent kills the child as a result of hallucinations or delirium, unwanted child filicide, which is when, for whatever reason, the parent decides that the child no longer has a place in their lives and decides to eliminate them. This usually occurs quite soon after birth, but has been known to occur when the parent becomes involved in a new relationship 
and they believe that it is threatened by the fact that they have children. This was seen in another US case of Susan Smith, who murdered her children by pushing the car that they were in into a lake and allowing them to drown. It would later be determined that Smith had done this because she'd become involved with a man who didn't want children. The next form of filicide is called accidental filicide and occurs when there is no homicidal intent by the perpetrator. This would be the case with parents who can be proven to have accidentally left their children in hot cars, for example. The final form of filicide is neonaticide, and that is the killing of a child within 24 hours of its birth. This could either be intentional, by smothering or some other means, or it could be as a result of abandonment, where the parents had to have known that by leaving the child on its own, death could have resulted. In another study published in the South African Journal of Psychiatry, researchers found that almost half of the mothers that had committed filicide while experiencing mental illness had done so when their children were three to four years old and had planned joint filicide suicides but failed to end their own lives after killing their children. I found this very interesting because it seems that the nature of these crimes is that the psychosis develops in almost a slow burn. It's not like the mother will present with immediate signs of homicidal ideation toward her child or children at birth. It's a succession of events that add up to this horrendous consequence. Many of the women studied were also single parents or in tumultuous relationships, and they were unemployed. While cold-blooded motives for filicide are perhaps more rare than motive related to mental illness or intense feelings of desperation, I think that it's important to take each case on its own merits. Something that is also interesting is that, as a society, we tend to have more empathy for a woman that seems to have been driven to commit such a crime than a man who may well be living with exactly the same mental illnesses, obviously save postpartum depression. While I can understand having empathy for someone who may have felt like there was no other way out, surely that should go for both genders? In all fairness, the instance of filicide or familicide in cases of domestic violence, where it is simply a means to ultimate control, is far higher in men than in women. We may never understand how a woman can kill her own child. But perhaps if we are more willing to accept that the possibility does exist, we can actually make a move toward reducing the frequency of these incidents. If we allow ourselves to consider that this is a possibility, rather than insisting it cannot be, then perhaps women that are living with postpartum depression or psychosis will be more likely to come forward and seek help before it's too late. The more we close our eyes to this, the greater the stigma becomes, and children and women continue to lose their lives. I hope that you enjoyed your Spotlight Minisode this week. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to a podcast that I've been binging. It's called The Shattered Window, 
and it's an investigative series podcast brought to you by Emily Thompson, the host of Morbidology, and Eileen McFarlane, the host of Crime Labs. These two phenomenal independent podcasters have come together to investigate the case of Jacqueline DeWallaby, a child that was murdered in Midlothian, Illinois, in 1988. Here's the team to tell you more. The murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who've lived through it. It was a sensational, startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street, and even more chilling, they could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. I highly recommend that you listen to The Shattered Window. All their episodes are now out, so you can binge to your heart's content. If you enjoyed this mini-sode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.